Welcome to the Club 46 podcast driven by Bridgestone. I'm Jim Donovan. On this week's podcast, we're joined by Browns legend Brian Sipe. The former Browns quarterback is one of only four players in team history to win the NFL's Most Valuable Player Award and holds numerous team records, including most completions, passing yards, and passing touchdowns. We hope you enjoy our sit-down with the great Brian Sipe. Thrilled to be joined by former Browns quarterback and NFL MVP Brian Sipe. It is great to see you back here in Cleveland, Brian, always. I, I appreciate that very much, Jim. I got to tell you, I feel like I'm on a honeymoon every time I come back here. Uh, the fans have just been so great to me and my family, so great to be here. Why do you think that is? Because I have to tell you, whether you're here or not here, you mentioned the name Brian Sipe around Cleveland, and a smile comes on everybody's faces. You represent a guy that people really connected with here, and certainly your team, those cardiac kids. That That's a very, very special moment to a lot of fans. Well. I, I think that smile is just is, is a homage to all the great guys that I played with. That, that huddle that I went into every, every series uh, in the stadium back then, those guys are still remain some of my very best friends uh, to this day. Robert Jackson's uh, uh, my son's godfather. And uh, it, just, it was just a special group of guys at a special, I think at a special uh, time in Cleveland's history too. I think that had a lot to do with why we've been embraced so much. Because I was drafted in 1972 and uh, I remember taking that first drive. Back then, the, uh, the NFL draft was in February. So right afterwards, they brought all the draft choices and even, even the 13th rounders, which, which was the round I was taking in. And I'll never forget that drive up 71 from the airport. And uh, if those of you that are old enough remember, Cleveland was a mess. Cleveland was a mess. It the, was. The flats, the steel mills were shut down. Uh, the town was struggling just even, you know, clearing snow off the roads. and. And it was a year after the, the river caught fire, you know. So I think the town was struggling for an identity, needed something good to happen. The football team was pretty good in 72, but we went dark for a little while. Yeah. And then uh, when we finally came out of when it, when we started to come out of that, and really in, in, uh, in 76, the first year I started, uh, we went 9-5, and five, and, then, and then we started to get, we started really putting the pieces together, uh, and the, the town just went wild. Do you have a lot of great memories Cleveland teammates with the Browns. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Cardiac Kids really started in 79. Everybody celebrates the 1980 season. In 79, the, the Browns hadn't been on Monday night football. Uh, there hadn't been a Monday night football game in Cleveland since the very first Monday night football game when the Browns played the Jets. And that was 10 years earlier. So we're 2-0 going into the third game of the season against the, uh, the uh, Dallas Cowboys, who are 2-0. And this town lit up. I mean, lit up. You know, there were, there were banners hanging out of windows, apartment windows, and the crowds down at practice at Berea, you know, just straining to look through the fence. And everybody was just so excited about that game. And I'll never forget that. We came out and we smoked them, too. We smoked them. That was fun. Uh, for me personally, it was a big night. Uh, my father was terminally ill with cancer. I knew it was going to be the last game he would ever see, and he, uh, my family had brought him back for that game. Uh, I remember uh, walking out for the coin toss, shaking Roger Staubach's hand, going, wow, <laughs> I'm in the bigs. <laughs> I'm in the big leagues. So that's certainly one of, I mean, that's a specific memory, but I have so many memories from my time here. And you have lifelong friends. 
oh, as yeah. teammates here, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Robert Jackson, who I just uh, was able to uh, spend the last couple of hours down at practice, down at the training facility. Robert Jackson uh, and his wife, Linda, are dear friends. They're our son Nolan's uh, godparents. Uh, we're always back. Their hospitality is second to none. Doug Deacon, of course, is a friend. Tom DeLeon was my uh, roommate for 10 of the, of the 12 years that I was here with Cleveland. Uh, you know, Greg Pruitt, I, so many of the guys were just fantastic. Dave Logan, the whole offensive line. All right, let's go back to growing up. Yeah. You're like every kid. You, it sounds like you played every sport. Football, oh, yeah. baseball, basketball. Sure. You have a great story, though. You're on a Little League World Series right. championship team. Williamsport, yeah. Pennsylvania. Any kid that plays Little League baseball, their dream is to go to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, be on Wide World of Sports. Yeah. Right? And you were. It happened. It, 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 and, you know, when you're 11 years old, and, and this, is, now, this is going back, it was 1961, so Little League was, every, every boy knew about Little League, sure. right? There wasn't right. all these club teams and different sports. No so traveling teams or anything like right. that. Right. Yeah. There, there, there really was not a, a nationwide organized, uh, organized sports program other than Little League. And so I grew up wanting to have that ball cap, you know what I mean? And... Um, Played in a, a Northern Little League, of both El Cajon and La Mesa, outside of San Diego. The two cities both claimed us because boys came from both both towns. Uh, but we were pretty darn good. Uh, I was the only 11-year-old, so I was kind of a youngster on the team. Everybody else was 12. Uh, I played catcher. I uh, didn't have a big role on that team, to be honest with you. I uh, had three pass balls in uh, the fifth game and almost single-handedly lost it. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do that when you're a catcher. No. Uh, but yeah, we went. We found our way back to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. This was not tournament play at the time. You, you lose and you're out. So we won 13 straight games to get back to Williamsport. Um, there was a cover, as the old timers watching this will remember, Life Magazine. Uh, there was a picture of our team in Life Magazine hoisting, this is my claim to fame, hoisting our star player up on our shoulders uh, who had hit a walk-off home run in the championship game. So it just was wild. Met him at home plate, carried him off. I'm in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> I made it to Life Magazine. I was fired up. What was it like when you, when you guys came home? Was oh, it, was it, it was I mean, big did they time. celebrate? Oh, it was, it was big time. Uh, yeah, El Cajon had a, an airfield. It wasn't a commercial. Uh, it was like a private strip. But one of our... Um, uh, one of our... Uh, coaches was a commercial airline pilot and so he got permission it used to be western airlines became psa airlines and i don't know what it bought out after that but uh he got permission to fly one of their their planes into the elkhorn airport and so uh there were fire engines down there and all kinds of people and they put us on the fire engines and drove us through town it was big stuff it was when you're a kid you know for the longest time people would ask me what's my favorite uh, sports memory. Well, when you're 11 and you do something like that, it's like the Super Bowl. You know, it's a big deal. Absolutely. And and one thing we we used to love. All of us did this. It, when you played little league back then, if you made it to the majors, you, you got these pins. And a green pin, if everybody had everybody wore little league caps. If you had a green pin, it meant you were a major league player, meaning you played at the highest level of little league, right? Mm -hmm. If you had, I think it was a light blue pin, it meant that you, or white pin, it meant that you made your league's all-star team. 
and then I think a pink one meant you won your first tournament. And then for each tournament you were in, you got a pin. Well, we look like five-star generals. <laughs> We'd wear our hats around. I mean, I never took that hat off, but every kid knew about pins, and they'd look at us and go, what's that? Of course, then we'd get to tell them what happened. Uh, that, was, that was big stuff. And I've been back to Williamsport, and uh, it's just such a wonderful thing that they're still, still doing. It's a slice of Americana. The people are wonderful. The, the event, it's first class. It really is. Tell me this. What made it football? Was it, was, was it you just love that more than the other sports? Or? Oh, yeah. I could not wait to play football. When I grew, where I grew up, I think the reason that I was probably as successful as I was in sports is that we had some older, we had two older boys in our neighborhood, Joel Clark and Pepper Kay. One day, uh, Joel and uh, Pepper had gotten together with a group of other boys that were outside of our neighborhood, and they'd started playing over at the local high school, Grossmont High School, and they were playing tackle football, and they'd all gotten pads and helmets. And I'll never forget, they needed some, they needed some bodies, and they asked me if I would go, and I said, I don't have a helmet and shoulder pads, and they said, we'll get them for you. So I went over there, and, and that day I got my first taste of, of hit-hard tackle football, and I said, this is what I want to do. So. I think I was 10 years old at the time. When we were back in Williamsport, when we weren't practicing, we were talking about the fact that, that we, were, come, we would, were gonna get home late for the start of the very first Pop Warner season in San Diego. And we were all fired up to get home, get our pads and you know, jump into that. So that was my entree into, into organized football. And that happened when I was 11. Were you always a quarterback? No, no. I always wanted to be a fullback, and that's the position I played because I just wanted to run the ball. And uh, I got to, to Grossmont High School, so I got in a line with the fullbacks, and the line was too long, and they needed more offensive linemen. Mm. So they picked me out and, and, said, and, and made me a guard. And I was a, I was a guard for a day, and I said, this isn't working because I knew I was a good enough athlete that I'd be better at a skill position. And so I snuck over to the wide receivers, and fortunately, the two quarterbacks who were fighting it out for the job, apparently they, uh, our coach didn't think they were good enough, and he, he literally lined the team up and picked the three tallest guys, of which I was one, and said, you guys are trying out for quarterback. And that was my start. And so I said, okay, and I, and I could throw. I was I, naturally good at throwing. I uh, used to love that throw down to second base. And um, won the starting job, and then I was a quarterback ever, ever since. How about in high school? Were you um, heavily recruited No. as you went along? Was no. It, were you winning uh, state titles uh, at Grossmont High School? At, at the time, they didn't have a state. Uh, in California, they didn't have a state chi uh, uh, title. They had... Uh, CIF is the California Interscholastic Federation, broke the state up into like districts, you know, and we would only play for those championships. No, we were very good. I, I, was, I started there as a junior, uh, and I was, I was okay. My senior year, I got really good. I was uh, CIF Player of the Year, actually Co-Player of the Year, and I thought, well, I guess I'm going to play in college, but I didn't, get, I didn't hear from anybody um, except Don Coriel at San Diego State. Wow. But How did he come upon, uh, upon you? Well, I was playing right under his nose, you know, so, and Rod Dauhauer uh, came out 
to school one day. He worked with me a little bit over the summer, and so they offered me a scholarship uh, to go to San Diego State after my senior year when I was player of the year, and they, they offered me a scholarship. But Coriel was, was a very crafty guy. Um, back then, the um, freshmen weren't allowed to compete at the varsity level in college. And just like now, you had five years to complete four years of eligibility. But he had decided that he wasn't gonna waste any scholarships on freshmen. He recruited all junior college transfers. So the entire team was made up of junior college transfers every year, and he was, and he was winning uh, FCS national championships. I mean, he was, we had the longest win streak in the, in the country, and it was all junior college transfers. And so he offered me a scholarship when I was coming out of, uh, after my senior year at, at uh, Grossmont High School, but he asked that I go to junior college for one semester, so, which I did. I went to Grossmont Junior College which was in my neighborhood, played one season and then transferred up for the spring. And, um, and then that's how I got started. Tell me this, this is a story okay. of a 13th round draft choice. Yeah. There aren't 13 rounds anymore, right. okay? I mean, there are seven, and a lot of times the seventh round draft choice right. isn't around. You're a 13th round draft choice. I'm gonna throw out a term that maybe a lot of young football fans never even heard of, a taxi squad player. How did you stay with it and make it all the way up to where you made it? So that, that's really an easy question for me to answer because um, first of all, I knew I was gonna have trouble getting drafted because I wasn't very big. And back then it was when they first started going towards the, the big quarterbacks. Uh, the year before uh, I was taken, the first three picks were uh, Dan Pastorini, Jim Plunkett, and Archie Manning. You know, all Not big, bad. <laughs> big guys, big guys, you know. Uh, and uh, that, that was the Terry Bradshaw era. I was six foot, 185 pounds, and uh, even though I led the nation in passing, I wasn't getting a lot of attention before the draft. Uh, there was some attention from the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, someone thought that they might take me in the fifth round, but draft day rolled around. I didn't get called the first day, and the second day the Browns called, and um, be, to be quite honest, I'm sitting at the beach in, in San Diego, and uh, uh, my wife Jerry and I had to pull out a map to make sure we knew where Cleveland was because <laughs> never been back to this part of the country before. So through the years and you before you actually got the job, right? Yeah. Do you give the Browns a lot of credit for sticking with you? Like who was who was the big Brian Sype fan? Because in today's NFL, you got to do it pretty uh, quickly. That's a gr I'm glad you asked that question because uh, I need to mention Blanton Collier. But I remember looking around going, I think I can do this, but I don't know. You know what? I didn't know what to expect. And Blanton Collier pulled me aside one day and he said, Brian, I think you can play in this league. He said, when you go on the field, I got a feeling you're not coming right back off. And what he was saying is I was going to move the ball. You know what I mean? That's what we get paid to do, right? Move the ball, get close to the end zone, score some points. Blanton Collier was right. Once you get on the field, yeah. you weren't coming off. Well, yeah, I love Blanton. <laughs> right guy at the right time. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Performance when it matters most. That's why Bridgestone Dueler Tires boast up to an 80,000-mile limited warranty, so they're in it for the long haul. Because nothing says endurance like season after season of clutch performance. Bridgestone, official tire of the Cleveland Browns. Conditions apply. Log on to BridgestoneTire.com warranty for details.
let's go to the cardiac kids. Yeah. Um, they started out in 1980. Right. And I know you said they started the kind of the aura. Right. The year before. But in 80, the year, you start out 0-2. Yeah. Then, boom, these incredible down-to-the-last-second finishes started. Take me through when it started and did you guys just feel this level of invincibility late in the game that you could do it? Jim, I think that, I think what really set us apart at that time is that the guys could get focused late in the game when they needed to be focused. That's not to say they weren't that way in the first half. Coaches get a little funny, teams get a little funny in the fourth quarter when they're protecting leads. And, and, and then we started forcing the action. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, you get them on their heels, and then suddenly it's just like, you know, it's like they're, they're on roller skates and we're going downhill. You know, and that's, I think the guys understood that if we just stayed focused, not every play is going to score a touchdown or even get be a big game, but if we just stay focused, we're just going to keep taking what they give us and somebody's going to make a big play. And sure enough, they would. Pruitt would break one. Reggie would make a great catch. Ozzie would bust one up the middle. Logan would jump up over somebody and make a catch, you know. But we were just forcing the action, forcing the action. Now, the other thing that for me as a, as a quarterback and as far as uh, the tactical side of it, I also knew that this was the advent of nickel defenses where they would put in additional defensive backs. And, and a lot of the staffs at that time became, they were pretty predictable about what they were going to be doing with their nickel defenses. And Sam Rotigliano was letting me call the plays. And so I knew if I, if I pushed the action, and, and we, even, even, on, even if we had an incomplete pass, we'd oftentimes go right to the line of scrimmage because I knew that I was forcing them into a coverage that, I, that I'd seen the play before, and then I'd make a, a call at the line of scrimmage to take advantage of that coverage. And th things have gotten a little more complicated since, but at that time, that, that was really an advantage that offenses had if they, if, if they understood how to do it, and we did. We did, and I think everybody on the team, especially in the huddle, they understood it's our time. This is when we shine, you know, and, and we did. And that's, that's so important because, you know, you can measure, a lot of times a quarterback is measured, arm strength, you know, ability to, you know, get rid of the ball quickly. You hear about all this now. But there is that category that general managers, head coaches, coordinators look for. Can that guy, that quarterback, Go into that huddle. Last drive of the game. Yeah. Gotta have it. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. And apparently you had it. You could go in that huddle and say, okay, we're going, huh? No nervousness at all? Lots of nerves before games. Lots of nerves. And some nervous, nervousness then, you know, knowing that it's, it's now or never, you know, but... Uh, I think anybody that's good that plays at that level figures out how to how to get get into a, a zone or a, a, a routine. You know, this is this is what I have to do. For me, because I was calling the plays, uh, you know, I'm looking at the clock. I'm I'm looking for if there's going to be any substitutions. You know, and I'm my brain's I'm just my brain's working too hard. You know, to be nervous, truthfully, to to be nervous. Um, Jerry will tell you after the games. I used to have horrible headaches and I think it was just from three hours but especially at the end of the game just so intensely focused and just grinding you know what I mean and, and uh, uh, so 
I don't know. I can't explain what you're asking me to explain. We ju I was just doing my job. And so, and the guys were just doing their job. And I would just remind them, you just, you got a job to do, do your job. Everybody just do their job and something big's going to happen here. We just keep doing your job. And that's what we did. Was there one of those comebacks that was your favorite? A lot of people talk about the Packer game yeah. at the old stadium. I mean, you're talking 80, 81, 82,000 people yeah, in those days. And you get the ball to Logan. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that, a pretty amazing one. And that, great Gib Shanley call of the touchdown. Wow, I mean, that's, that's a treasure. That was, that was really special. I think my favorite game is we beat, uh, we, we had a late win. We had to score twice late to beat the, the Miami Dolphins. And I had a lot of respect for certain people, you know, like when I got to see, play against Roger Staubach. But Don Shula was on the sidelines. They had us beat. We were down by a, a couple of touchdowns. And... Um, and I'll never forget, we pit, because I was looking at the sidelines and he was trying to make substitutions. And um, I knew by what substitution he was making, I'd figured out what, what coverage they were gonna run. So I would just sit in the huddle and, and wait for him to, to send his guy on the field before I'd, before I'd call a play. And uh, at one point, we would be looking at each other. Shula, <laughs> I'd be looking at him, I'm looking at the, the play clock. Because at some point I knew, you know, I knew what I wanted to call if he didn't send somebody on the field. And so we were playing this cat and mouse game and, uh, and we were driving and he couldn't, and I had him. I, I knew exactly what we were going to do. And at one point Shula took his clipboard and he was looking at me, took his clipboard and just slammed it on the ground like that. <laughs> I went, bam, we got these guys. And we went down, we went down and scored. I think Reggie caught that one for the game winner. So during the the 80 season, we beat the uh, Houston Oilers. Now you're coming home then. Yeah. You we're, come back home. We're down, right. we're, yeah. down in, we're down in Houston and we beat the Oilers. And that put us solidly in, in a position to win the, the division, which they hadn't won since I think 69 or something. And uh, uh, after we landed, we were taxiing and the, uh, the uh, pilot came over the yeah. intercom and said, uh, that they had to make some, that there was, going to, there was going to be some special arrangement made for us because there was a problem at the terminal. Well, when we taxied around uh, where the jetway is, when we taxied around, all we saw were, were faces in the terminal smashed up against the, wow. against the windows. Not, not, they were smashed up because the people behind them were pushing, you know, and er, the, and we couldn't believe it. We're taxiing in like this and looking at and going, oh my gosh, what's going on? So it turns out that this was before TSA. Yeah. So, the, you know, you could, walk, you could go down to the gates and right. people would go down the gates and meet people. Well, the Browns fans decided to meet the cardiac kids and, and they created such a security nightmare that they had to close all the gates because the fans had, had overwhelmed uh, that, that end of the terminal. So we sat on the uh, we sat in the um, in the plane while they said they were going to make some security arrangements. Well, there was no way we were going to get up, walk up the jetway, and out into this crowd. Right. So next to the jetways, there's there's a, a like service stairs, right? So we were going to go up the jetway, and they were going to push the crowd back so we could hang a U-turn and go down the the, the jetway service stairs, and. Uh, so I was sitting up in front. Tom DeLeon, my, my roommate, was very superstitious, and they used to let the oldest guys sit up in the front of the jet, which I thought was really big of Art Modell. 
because they sat in the back. It was pretty cool. It, you know, the owner and everybody else was in the back. They let the players have the front. So Tom and I are right on the bulkhead. And uh, sitting across from us was Lyle Alzado and somebody else. So they tell us, okay, we're gonna, here's what we're going to do. We're, you guys get on the jetway. We're going to push everybody back. Blah, blah, blah. We're going to do this thing, right? Well, if you, if you remember Lyle Alzado, he was a pretty colorful guy. Besides yeah. being a good football player, he was, he was, a, he was a, a, a fans player, loved crowds. And I remember, so I, I'm, I'm first off the plane with Tom, right? We get, and we turn the corner, and I look up there, and all I see are screaming fans and, and security guys trying to push the fans back like this. And I said, Tom, we ain't getting out of here. Just then, Lal Alzado bolts by us. <laughs> he, runs, he runs up the jetway and does a mosh dive pit out into the crowd. Just <laughs> the whole place just erupts and goes crazy. We all ran up this jetway and got down because they were all dealing with, with Alzado who was being carried off to God knows where by the fans. <laughs> so uh, that was pretty priceless. So we ended up going down and getting on buses and they bust us back to um, Berea where we would leave our cars. You're gonna play the Raiders. Yeah. Was it cold all week? Before yeah. the game, did you know it was going to be that cold for the game? I don't, I don't know that anybody was predicting that it was going to be as cold as it was. But I remember driving down in the stadium, and, and the, the lake had frozen solid. You know, it, it like, froze with, with waves and, like, like froze. Like, <laughs> waves going to break, and then, nope, it's froze. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's cold. The field was so bad, uh, water had percolated up from the ground and frozen in these like mushrooms, you know, of you know, all over the field, you could see them, you know, and in between them, there was dirt and you could get traction. But if, if you're trying to do something on one of these spots, it was like a, a skating rink. So it's bitter cold that way, dealing with that field in that condition. Um, the wind was howling and when, it, and when the wind blew in that stadium, if you remember, it swirled. Yes. And we missed two field goals and, and, um, and an extra point. Now, how did that go? I can't remember. But the point is, is that it was hard to kick, and especially down at the open end of the field. So we have time for one last drive. We drive the length of the field. We're in front of the goalpost. We're down by one point. It's time to kick, kick and go home. And, um, and we called timeout, went over and talked about it at the sidelines, and, and Sam wanted to to try and throw one more time. And, and <clears throat> I understood why he wanted to because we were really having, it was really a struggle to kick at that end. Uh, our holder had trouble. He, he dropped one snap because his hands were too cold. It was a mess. And, um, and so Sam, Sam uh, made, you know, we talked about what we were gonna do. Personally, I thought my job was done. <laughs> let's, let's let Mike Pruitt try and do it, you know. Uh, uh, but Sam, Sam uh, thought we should try and throw it. And I've told people, I clearly, I clearly caused that problem. But I always appreciated that Sam thought that the best chance to win was to let me throw the ball one more time. So we ran, we he called Red Right 88, or we talked about what we would throw down there. Red Right 88, it was, it was a series of crossing routes. And Ozzy in the slot here, if the safety came down, he was going to dip. If, it, if they blitzed, he was going to dip over the top of it instead of running a crossing route. And I'd throw him in the back of the end zone. 
Sam wanted me to hit Logan going across the other way, which is what I was prepared to do. But when the safety came down, that's what we had done all season long. And I put, and I put a ball up in the air that just fluttered. You know, I, I had a shot, Ozzy was open, and I put a ball up into that wind and it just, it just fluttered and fell right in Mike Davis's hands, um, which he's still very grateful for, by the way, Mike Davis, <laughs> when I run into him. Yeah, that was, uh, that was brutal. The, the, so you probably want to ask me more about, about the play. Uh, that's, about, that's about all that there is to that story. It was a play we were very familiar with. I reacted how I'd reacted all year, and I threw a ball that just didn't spiral into that wind. And uh, Ozzie would have caught it if I'd thrown it correctly. The inter interesting thing about that story and why it's such a part of the cardiac kids I, I owe this to a sports writer in New York because two days later I was to, to go to the New York Athletic Club and, and be awarded the NFL Player of the Year. And I was not in the mood for it. It was just, you know, the, the way it ended it was just too heartbreaking. You know, I didn't want to go to New York and get in front of that sea of media and have to just regurgitate yeah. this whole thing, but imagine. that's what you do, right? Right. right? So I went there. And, did you know? Did what I what I needed to do, and when the day was over with, as everybody's kind of packing up to leave, one of the reporters came up to me and he said something to me that was really almost life changing. He said, "He said, Brian. He said, he said, you watch over time. The way that season ended is going to be very special to the people in Cleveland and to your teammates." And I looked at him like, "You got to be kidding! I don't want to hear this." Uh, he was absolutely right. I don't, I'm not a psychologist, you know, I don't know how that works, but that seared that season into everybody's head. You know what I mean? Nobody will ever forget that season. There was such excitement about that and it came so close, you know. I don't think there's a, anybody that, that uh, was alive at that time in Cleveland doesn't remember exactly where they were, were when that happened. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to this day, I, I'm amazed uh, that, you know, I travel places and it'll be found out that I played NFL, you played for the Browns. Did you know the cardiac kids? You were part of the cardiac kids? Well, I think it was because of that, of the, the drama of that. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Performance when it matters most, which is why Bridgestone tires are built for just that. Whether it's driving up to 50 miles to safety after a flat, confident control in wet conditions, or the dependability of an 80,000-mile limited warranty, Bridgestone's roster of tires has got you covered. Bridgestone, official tire of the Cleveland Browns. Conditions apply. Log on to BridgestoneTire.com slash warranty for details. I really compliment you and Jerry Shirk. Uh, when we were paralyzed here by the moving of the team, oh. and it obviously hit the two of you, and it hit everybody, I think, that was ever a, a Cleveland Brown. But the two of you did a very unique thing. You did yeah. that documentary yeah. where you like traveled across the country. Yeah. Destination Cleveland, right? because I remember you editing it in, in our studios, yeah. in our television station. Um, can you tell me about that? that I mean, that was... A, it was an amazing project to take on. It was, it was, and it was so much fun. So to set this thing up, uh, Modell is making noise about, you know, the team leaving. Yeah. Actually, he wasn't making noise. There was a lot of speculation. He was kind of mum about it, he, but he was trying to get an, an, a stadium. They, he couldn't get right. the City Fathers to move on that deal. 
he had just negotiated the expansion, uh, you know, expansion uh, deals. So he knows what cities are willing to spend for a stadium. So Jerry Shirk and I, uh, at the at the prodding of Robert, my dear friend Robert Jackson, the legend, NFL legend, who's out visiting us, is saying, "You guys got to do something. You, the fans love you. You got to do something. The team's leaving. The team's leaving." Well, we kind of figured out that Modell was going to leave anyway. I, but the fans, if you recall, uh, really uh, did a remarkable thing. I'm getting ahead of myself. So we're just brainstorming one night. Well, what would we do, Robert? What would I do? You know, oh, everybody knows you. Well, that's fine, but what would I do? Well, make a video. Okay, how would we make a video? You know, and so then Shirk and I were, you know, just playing mind games and go, well, what if we just got in a motor home and drove across country to the last Browns game? And at the time, nobody was saying it was the last Browns game, but I, we were pretty convinced it would be. And uh, so Robert says, I, I can get it, if you do that, I can get it financed. I know people, nah, 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 nah. so Robert, sure enough, had some great connections in Cleveland. Some people said, we'll give you whatever you need. So. We put together a film crew. An old teammate of mine at San Diego State uh, had a film crew. He was doing some reality TV shows, and they jumped on board with this, uh, uh, with Jerry and I onto a motorhome with a couple of cell phones and no script. Yeah. And we started calling. Uh, we would just we would just look up Browns backers, you know, because there's Browns backers organization. So we go, well, how far are we going tonight? Well, we're gonna we're gonna we got a late start. We'll stop in Yuma. So we would call some Browns backers. Is there a Browns backers in Yuma? Yeah, there's Browns backers in Yuma. You know, call this guy. So we'd arrive in Yuma, and the fans would be there cheering, wearing all their brown and orange, and, and, and we'd have a, an impromptu pep rally. And we just did this all the way across the country, and, and uh, by the time we got to Cleveland, we had visited with a, a lot of remarkable people. And, uh, and by then, we were making phone calls to, to former Browns. You know, uh, Jim Brown sat down with us. A number of, of greats sat down, uh, did that. Um, and then we had unprecedented access to the, to the, the last game. I think that uh, everybody was, Modell was gone by then. Uh, yes. Things were dark, you know, and uh, uh, we probably, got more access than the NFL wanted us to have, but our film crews could go everywhere. And, and that footage is pretty priceless of that last yeah, game. In fact, it's been used in some other, um, uh, for some other projects, you know, some of the film that we took. But that was very touching. You know? It really was. And you, you were working at the station at the time. You saw us while we were in there editing. I'm sure you, you saw it. And that, that last game was one for the ages. Yeah, it was. I mean, watch those fans, the reaction that they had, the tears and the anger and, you know, just the whole thing. And it was kind of surreal for Jerry and I to be there like we're, like we're television people, right. you know, yeah. trying to, what do we do now? Where do we go now and, and do players all Players were sad. Oh, everybody was you sad. Know, they, yeah, was they were just, caught in the middle. Caught in the middle. Yeah. It's terrible. Um, you, you coached. Yeah. Did you like it? You like coaching? You coached high school, and then you went back to you went to San Diego State. Yeah. Did you like coaching? I liked parts of it. Uh, <laughs> the winning. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I tell people I left the I left the best coaching job in the world to, to go coach to, at San Diego State for a while, which was great. 
But, uh, you know, I was, my kids uh, were at a small uh, private school, Santa Fe Christian. The coach and the athletic director kind of introduced themselves to me and asked if there, I could help. And I said, well, I'm not a coach. I don't, you know, whatever. I'll come out and talk to your kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I went out and talked to the kids and they said, well, would you come back next week and talk to the kids? And I go, well, if it'll help, I'll come talk to your quarterbacks. Well, next thing I know, I got a whistle around my neck. <laughs> and, the, and the head coach is quitting. And, and they asked me if I would be the head coach. And, and so I said yes. Um, with no, no experience. But I knew that, uh, I, knew that uh, I had enough name recognition that I could get people's attention. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. And, and so I did. I was able to round up some, some really good coaches uh, who were willing to take a chance at this little program, and uh, we just had tremendous success. I ended up doing that for eight years, and then Brady Hoke, who's an Ohio guy, yeah. he came. He would come by the school while I was coaching. I didn't have any D1 players, but this coach from Michigan kept showing up. He was on Bo Schembechler's staff before oh, okay. he went back. Right. After Ball State, San Diego State went back as the head coach. I go, from Michigan? So I went down there, and, and it was Brady. And he did this a couple of times, and, and, I, and I realized I think he just wanted to talk to a Cleveland Brown, you know, one of, his, one of the old, old Browns guys. So anyway, he ends up getting the job at San Diego State and, and uh, asked me to coach the quarterback. So I went there, thought I'd do it for a couple of years. Six years later, I woke up and said, okay, I'm going to pay more attention to my grandkids now, you yeah. know. But no, I'm not a coach. I'm not a coach. I realized I love the game. I, love, uh, I loved coaching at the high school level. My son-in-law coaches at uh, Torrey Pines High School, uh, one of the more powerhouse uh, programs in the San Diego area. And uh, I spent the last two years coaching their quarterbacks, which was fun. Yeah. I love being on the field uh, during practices. Love being on the field during practices. And so tell me about Ryan Lindley. Ah, so I, I get to San Diego State and uh, Ryan was uh, going into his sophomore season and he was clearly the best quarterback at San Diego State at the time. And he remembered that I had been coaching at, at uh, Santa Fe Christian. We were a little bitty school taking swings at the big boys. He was one of the big boys, and we had his, his team down 28-7 at half. Everybody was in shock that we were doing this to, this, to Lindley's powerhouse team. Well, he came out in the second half and threw five touchdowns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so obviously we, he remembered the game and everything, so kumbaya, hey, and now I'm your coach. And so I got to coach Ryan for, for uh, three years at San Diego State. I just think he's a really special guy. I think that I, I'm just so tickled that he and, and Baker Mayfield are together. Uh, Ryan um, had an had a NFL career. He never established himself as a starter. But the reason he was there is he was such an astute quarterback and such a great leader and such a charismatic guy. Um, and he ended up training quarterbacks after he graduated, or after he left the NFL, he trained quarterbacks for the co uh, combines. So he knows the N he knew the NFL game, and uh, the fact that he ended up here is just ironic. I mean, how does that happen? My, I, he's my favorite quarterback in the whole world. Now he's coaching the Cleveland Browns quarterback. A lot you of know. responsibility. A lot of responsibility, uh -huh. but he was he was drafted by the Cardinals and uh, Kitchens. Coach Kitchens was with the Cardinals, yeah. knew Ryan, coached Ryan, you know, brought Ryan back from the uh, Chargers when the two uh, Cardinals quarterbacks went down before, and they'd already qual uh, earned a playoff spot rather than play their rookie. They traded it for Ryan to get him back so that he could 
he could quarterback that game. So uh, just a tremendous guy. He, I, Baker's really lucky to have him. Tell me this. Are you at all surprised the quarterback position and how all-encompassing it has become to be great at it? I mean, you're talking about guys that live it every day, yeah. conditioning their body, yeah. just trying to stay in the game, trying to get better. Yeah. There's no off-season for them. Yeah. And really, it's almost like if they're going to be great, they have to subscribe to that. It seems like it. Yeah, it seems like it. Uh, I certainly can't relate to it. Uh, that's not how it was when we played. You know, we we would all scatter in the off season and kind of do our own workout programs. And and uh, Bill Tessendorf, uh, our head trainer, uh, of course, with Leo Murphy, but Leo wouldn't travel. But uh, Bill would come out and visit the cities and see. Okay, where are you working out? What are you doing? Oh, that's what we're doing. Okay, but uh, certainly not like it is now. I, some of it is resources. You know, I mean, these guys. If you got a chance to be a quarterback in the NFL, you got enough money to pay an entourage of people to train you. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. and a facility to be specialized. You know, I was out in the backyard with a net. I was throwing into a net because <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't get receivers to want to come run routes. You know, or I'd, I mean, these guys have camps. They get together. Oh yeah, I used to make I used camp. to make Jerry go out and catch. We were on vacation in Hawaii once. I took the ball because I was, we were going to go to training camp afterwards. And I said, Jerry, I, I got a throw today. And so she's catching, catching. One went right through her hands and hit her right, oh. in, the, right in the nose. Bloody nose. Jerry was not my target anymore. It's, it's, it's been amazing talking to you. You are revered. That is a very special thing. A, a California guy, a California kid comes to the Midwest and really captures the heart of the city. That's a, that's a pretty neat thing and that your name continues to be, yeah, as I said to you before, you really bring, the name Sipe brings a smile. Well, I think that uh, that's because when my name's mentioned, there was just so many other names that were part of that time, you know, and, and um, I'm obviously honored by that. I tell people I'm still enjoying the longest honeymoon in history with, with a city. I'm just uh, amazed at how well we're treated and very grateful at this point in my life. Thanks for listening to this week's Club 46 podcast, driven by Bridgestone. If you'd like to listen to more of these episodes, log on to clevelandbrowns.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, join us as we go one-on-one with Browns legend Doug Deacon. For Brian Sipe, I'm Jim Donovan. Thanks for listening.